Roxy, we never got the verdict. Did you put your dog in a Halloween costume? Did you become that kind of dog person? I did. He was the Pope. And he was adorable. A truly holy hound. The pup Pope. That's Mm -hmm. not a surprising dog costume for you to choose. So did you dress up to match? Mm -hmm. I was a mega church pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope your V was properly deep. Mm, There were a lot of kiddos around. So I couldn't mm. go as deep as would be realistic. Those mega church pastors are in the sexy Halloween costume category. Mm-hmm. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two Christian women dressing up and dishing out in New York City. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Caitlin, what was your nephew for Halloween? I mean, I love dogs in costumes, but obviously the kids, they steal the show. Yeah, this year, Luther went as a cheetah. Oh. He had the full costume. I think he had some face paint. He wore a little furry vest. It was very cute. He said... I have to go to the park to exercise before I go out as a cheetah. (laughs) Cheetahs need a lot of exercise. He needed to run around. Yeah. They need space. Yeah. Did you dress up as anything? I dressed up as a stressed out professional single woman who had to drop off her rent check. Ooh, scary. Yeah, it was a spooky, (laughs) it was a spooky night. (laughs) But it was, it was actually really fun. I had to drop it off October 31st, but it was like a perfect walk because Mm -hmm. everybody's out. Parents, kids are dressed up. People are handing out. It's like a very communal Mm neighborhood-y event, which is nice. I love Halloween in part because of that. It's one of the holidays, maybe more than even any others, that like I'm like, okay, I get the whole having kids thing because... (laughs) They're so cute. <laughs> I saw one dressed up as a cupcake, a little toddler. Oh, uh, that's adorable. You know, it's just like, I love that it is so communal. I love that everybody comes out on the street. The people are, you know, like knocking on doors and give out candy. And There's this street here in New York and Chelsea that like they really do it up too. So it's like all the brownstones are decorated like Mm-hmm. They close down the street. It's just like swarming yeah. with kids and people. And it just feels weirdly innocent, even though I know Halloween is like the least innocent holiday for some. But that part of it feels so sweet and charming. I think it was less innocent probably over last weekend before the actual. <laughs> yes, the village parade. Exactly. But yeah, I agree. I think a Halloween is the kind of holiday that celebrates like creativity, innocence, imagination, like how fun it is for kids to to be something else, you know, for one night. And I think it's also a holiday that like parents can get involved too. Like I think the older I get, the more I see like family costumes mm-hmm. and like some of them are way over the top, but some of them, it's just, I don't know. It just feels like <laughs> yes. it brings out the kid and the parents, you know, and I think kids get really excited about it too. So it's charming. So this is the primary reason you might want to be a mom. Yeah. Halloween costumes. It's fun to dress up your dog, but it would be even more fun to dress up a kid. Yeah. Just that one day of the year, I think. (laughs) 
Before we started this episode, our producer was like, so for people who are non-maternal like you, and I resent that. (laughs) I feel like you have said this on this podcast before, that you have a maternal instinct. I know how I seem. (laughs) But I love being around kids, and I feel like it is very natural for me to know how to speak with kids and connect with kids Mm. and play with kids. I am telling you that instinct thing is real. I don't think I have it, though. I've seen... Have I seen you interact with kids? (laughs) I can easily imagine you interacting with kids and not, like, stumbling over your words. Like, knowing how to connect. You have a goddaughter who has... I know. I'm good with her. Red hair. Yeah. That's all it takes. (laughs) There is a certain age. I feel like I'm good with the under, like, seven-year-olds. And then once they hit, like, eight, Uh I don't know what to do with them anymore. Mm. Then when they hit... Like 12, I really don't know what to do with them. When they like actively don't want to be your friend mm-hmm. <laughs> and don't want to have anything to do with you. That's kind of rough. Yeah. There's a bunch of teenagers that attend my church. And I think New York City teenagers are even scarier. Mm-hmm. They're so sophisticated. Yeah. They've been riding the subway since they were like six by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked before on the podcast about our complicated feelings toward motherhood More specifically, Mm -hmm. complicated feelings about not being moms at an age when we kind of expected to be. And it was one of our most popular episodes. Mm -hmm. Also one of our most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Although I have gone back and listened to it a couple times because stuff got real. Yeah. One of the things that makes it feel real is the sense that time was is running out in terms of that darned biological clock. Just keeps ticking. Like when you are tempted to do that thing where you start gaming out the timeline in your head, that that can start to feel pretty grim. Yeah. It's not good math to do, especially late at night, the middle of the pandemic. Mm. When you start thinking, okay, how long is it going to take to meet someone if I could ever meet someone? Mm -hmm. Uh, Then even if I did meet someone, then there's like a year or two of dating, then you get married and then... Maybe you want some time alone together. So there's another like six months or a year, whatever. You can't have too long at our age, but <laughs> no. And then the time it takes to get pregnant, which again, the older you get, the longer that takes. So mm-hmm. yeah, timeline math sucks. Mm-hmm. Don't recommend it. As the marrying age for both men and women goes up, it makes sense that a lot of women decide to prioritize the baby over the daddy. I never want to say daddy again. <laughs> the father. <laughs> The father. Yes. Well, there's a deadline or an end date on one of those. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could feasibly have a baby now and find a romantic partner later. And, you know, maybe that kind of takes the pressure off a little bit, Mm. even on your dating life. Last year, a 40-year-old producer on CBS Mornings had a baby on her own via a sperm donor. Here's what she had to say on the show about that decision. I had a longing to be a mother. I said to myself, in 15 to 20 years, would I be more upset that I didn't have a kid or more upset that I didn't fall in love and get married? And I was like, if I didn't have a kid for me, I feel like my life wouldn't be as fulfilled. Now, this is something we did talk about before. And we talked about that you and I both decided we didn't want to be single moms and go that route of sperm donor and in vitro. Mm -hmm. What are some of the reasons that you chose not to, mm-hmm. or do you think you'd change your mind? If I change my mind, I hope I do it real fast because <laughs> <laughs> TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I honestly, like through my twenties, I would say up until my late thirties, which is what I'm in now, it just never really seemed like a realistic option or path. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's because. That whole time, I just assumed I will probably meet somebody in this time, and that would be the preferable way for me to try to have a baby. Mm -hmm. Or if I didn't really know anybody who had done it. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I, I have known that many women do this, but I didn't know anybody in that time who had done it. That has changed for reasons we'll get to soon. And so it just wasn't in my imagination The cost Mm -hmm. as well as the incredibly intense 
physical and emotional process. Yeah. I'm just a wimp, which I think is another way of saying in my calculation, the desire to try to have a biological child does not outweigh the costs, both monetary and like physical and emotional costs. It's not a road that is guaranteed. It's not like Mm -mm. if you go down this path, you will have a baby eventually. So for all of those reasons, it wasn't in my realm of imagination. It's only been more recently that it has been. And even then, it's not important enough to me to try to have a biological child to go through all the costs of doing so. Yeah. I think what might change it is if I did meet somebody, again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, speed it up. Uh, And, like, we both decided we wanted to try to have a biological child and realized, Mm -hmm. oh, we need some assistance. Like, we need some help. Okay, let's enter this together and try it in this particular window. I think that would be the only thing that would that would tip it for me at this point. I think almost same on all counts. <laughs> it never even crossed my mind, honestly, until I moved to New York and I met a couple people who had frozen their eggs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think even then it was sort of the conversation was more, do you want to freeze your eggs in case you meet someone and you want to use those eggs with that person? Right. And then it wasn't even until a little bit later, like I think in 2019 or something that I first met somebody who was seriously pursuing like sperm donor Mm -hmm. as a single woman, like wanted a baby. And I don't know why that had never really crossed my mind. And even when she told me that, I was like, wow, it took me a while to wrap my head around imagining to do that. I think part of that was just such a a long-term idea I'd always had about like what it looked like to be a a parent like Mm -hmm. I always imagined it was with someone else and Mm -hmm. that it was a family you know so for me that had always been the necessary precursor you had to have the partner first Mm -hmm. and I think there's like a tiny bit of regret that I have about that because you know I'm definitely at an age where like odds are I'd probably need some assistance Mm -hmm. and you know, there is a part of me that's like, dang, why didn't I at least freeze the eggs? (laughs) But it was expensive. I mean, a lot of that too was just like by the time that I really kind of knew how and what it was and what it took and how to go about it, I was like, Mm -hmm. ooh, I don't Mm -hmm. really have that kind of money just sitting around as a single woman living in New York City. I mean, even freezing your eggs is a big chunk of change. It is. It is. That in and of itself is a kind of financial investment. I guess it's a keep safe. That's kind of the way of of thinking about it. Well, and the friends I had that did it, their companies paid for it, which was like a little perk of the crazy tech era. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I don't don't work in that Uh, industry. Yeah. When I talked to my boss at Christianity today, he wasn't very eager to sign up for that. (laughs) I am kidding. (laughs) But you never actually talked to your boss. Yes. (laughs) It probably would not have. Yes, for all sorts of reasons. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I am curious when you bring up your boss at Christianity today, like Mm -hmm. I think there is some theology questions there, or at least there were for me about like, is this playing God? Is this okay? Should we just adopt? Right. You know, is there something disordered about trying to have a baby on your own without Mm -hmm. a partner in this scientific way, this tech driven way instead of biologically? Yeah we can do this, but should we? Like, has technology Mm. given us the tools to try to have too much control over something that, you know, people for most of history have considered, like, this is really up to God or to chance, if anything. Mm -hmm. And probably, too, would there be anything that would change your mind at this point to do IVF? I think same as you. Like, I think probably only in a partnered situation. Mm -hmm. And it still scares me because of some of what you alluded to, like it's a physical cost. Like there's a lot to it for the woman Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, these hormone injections and all this stuff that you have to go through that I don't even really know. Basically harvesting your eggs after you get the hormone injections, hoping that they'll get like, I don't know, 17 or something. (laughs) Yeah. And then all this work you have to do to like get your 
body ready for when they do, you know, the IVF and then it often doesn't take. Mm -hmm. Or you don't have enough viable eggs. And like, I have a lot of friends who've miscarried Mm -hmm. the eggs that have been implanted and that's its own whole like traumatic and potentially painful, but certainly emotional weight to carry. And so, I mean, I think even if I made that decision, like it scares me to go through all of that. Mm -hmm. But I am really amazed at women who choose to go that route on their own. Which describes one of my closest friends who is a single woman and started her own IVF journey a few years ago to become a single mom by choice. And after lots of ups and downs, lots of, you know, difficult news and thinking that this would never happen, she is now, thankfully, the mom of a beautiful little newborn boy. She couldn't be happier. Mm. I'm getting, like, text updates every few days. Mm. I also know she's in the thick of caring for a newborn. And so she's really feeling like the the physical exhaustion of that but we could not be happier for her and we were so happy when your friend Annie Parsons just days before giving birth decided to come on the show and share with us about her journey into single motherhood I knew that when I was meeting men and going out on first dates second dates that what I really felt the most urgent about was being a mom And it started to feel like an unfair experience, both to them and to me, feeling this urgency in my spirit of like, well, is this my person? And how quickly could could we get going? And and does he want children? And is this the person I want children with? And really it, it started making dating not feel fun or exciting, but more like a means to an end, which is not fair to anybody. Our conversation with Annie is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From popes to deep V megachurch pastors, RNS has you covered. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. Don't forget to submit your weirdest ever date story at the new Saved by the City hotline. Go to speakpipe.com slash Saved by the City Tell us your weird stories, 90 seconds or less. We're getting some weird ones. Mm, Like the one with the pig. What? (laughs) Could your story be weirder than that? I doubt it. And I haven't even heard that one. (laughs) One lucky participant will get some SBTC swag. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. So I imagine your friend Annie is, as you said, deep in the newborn stages. Mm -hmm. I feel like being a new parent would uh, make you feel a little crazy. Brings out a lot of anxiety. And often when people have anxiety, they Google weird things in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. (laughs) looking for medical information a lot of the time. Looking for those answers, those AI answers. We present to you... 
the top funniest things new parents Google. When does baby poop look like regular poop? <laughs> like, uh, baby poop has a consistency that's different from, like, uh, I think we call it adult poop. I Isn't think. it when they stop drinking milk and, like, start eating solid foods? I guess that would make sense. <laughs> Did you ever play the baby shower game where you smush the different chocolate bars in the diapers and then you have to, like, smell it and identify the chocolate? Identify the types of chocolate. Yeah, like if it's a Snickers bar or like. Oh, gross! See, this is never played that game. And this is why I'm glad (laughs) that like I'm mostly out of the age bracket where people are doing baby showers. Yeah, exactly. All right, here's another one. Do babies have bad dreams? Aww. Oh, that one's not funny. It's sad. I think I would worry about that too. Is it normal for babies to grunt or sweat? I mean, only if they're at the baby gym, <laughs> lifting, lifting tiny little <laughs> weights. <laughs> How can I tell if something needs stitches? Oh, I would Google that for sure. That's not relegated to having a, a baby. <laughs> no, I think I'd Google that right now. Can your uterus fall out postpartum? Uh, I wonder if this is related to the stitches question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they seem they seem connected. <laughs> Having a person come out of you does some stuff down there. I think when I was younger, when my first set of friends were having babies, like when I was in my twenties, nobody talked about that. And now I oh, feel really? like my second and third set of friends that have had babies in there, maybe maybe it's an age thing. They're like, Oh yeah, mm. here's everything that can go wrong. I'm like, Oh, thanks, great. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> Is my breast pump saying something to me? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think this is a middle of the night lack of sleep question. <laughs> Absolutely. Is my child gifted? I wouldn't need to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Uh, finally, can you tell if someone is going to be a criminal when he is a toddler? Oh, no. <laughs> I think it's something like you observe your child not have an empathetic response or maybe they hit their Mm -hmm. head, you know, and Mm -hmm. like they say that sociopaths usually have like traumatic brain injury when they're little. They say that there's some kind of connection between like famous. This is terrible. It's not funny. Like famous mass murderers. If you go back into lots of their stories, there was some kind of like head injury when they were little. Oh, and that changed their entire personality. Like they were warm and loving before. And then they got really like cold and, murderous. Lots of people have concussions and they don't turn into mass murderers. Listeners, this is like at best folklore. At best. (laughs) All right. So what would you secretly need to Google if you found yourself suddenly a mom right now? (laughs) I think the first thing I would Google would be miraculous conception. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I would have some kind of like concern that it was an alien baby if it just popped out right now so i mean honestly i would probably google proper way to change a diaper it's been a really long Mm. time since i've done that of course i would google could my baby come out with a cone head sometimes that happens wow when does the cone go away (laughs) (laughs) how long does it take i would i would probably have to google something like how to stop your dog from being jealous of your baby. Absolutely. I mean, you put this dog in a Pope Halloween costume. (laughs) So he has internalized a sense that he is the center of your universe. And that would change. Absolutely. Can you give babies water? I guess I'd have to Google that. (laughs) Like a a new, I mean, you know, you can give a six month old a sippy cup with water. Mm -hmm. I assume you can. Yeah. But do you need to give your newborn water? So you have to Google that. <laughs> Seems like a really basic question that we should know the answer to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I'd have to Google a lot. Yes. All right, let's get to Annie. <laughs> We're so excited to be joined today by Annie Parsons, who has been a friend for five years. Mm. And through much of that time, Annie has been pursuing motherhood as a single woman, we have processed a lot about that journey. I truly feel like it's been an honor to walk alongside of her as a friend in all the ups and downs. And I'm just 
so delighted she gets to join us today. I am too. So good to see you, Annie. Hi, Annie. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for fitting us in, you know, three days before you give birth to a person. (laughs) That's very generous of you. I have a literal paper advent chain that I'm counting down and there are three, three links left on the advent chain before the baby comes. Oh, what is an advent chain? Is it like the paper chain you make as a kid? Yeah. So think like construction paper chain. And I think that growing up in the church, kids would use them to... Uh, count down the days until Christmas and maybe each one had like a Bible verse on it or something Mm. like that. And then I know that the more secular world has picked up on them and has created like the advent calendar of jam or, you know, where Uh every day you open it up and get a little prize. So I decided it would be helpful to have a visual to help me count down and just anticipate this baby being born. Wait, what is on each chain? Oh, nothing. (laughs) There's no prize. No Bible verses, no no jam. (laughs) No words, just links. (laughs) Yeah, we're a few days out and I have gotten some updates from you along the way, this journey which I'm sure has felt like a really long journey and also really, really fast. Yeah. Mm. Like we were all in New York City like a year ago yeah. mm-hmm. and you were not with child True. then. And now <laughs> you are very, very with child. So like, how are you feeling? What has you most excited? What has you most nervous? I feel very, very ready. Like physically, I feel stretched, literally. <laughs> and um, ready to ready to give my body some relief on the other side. I also feel ready internally. Um, It's been such a long road up to this point, and I just can't wait to meet this little guy and and start the process of figuring out who he is. And a friend of mine described it today as, it's like a blind date with the love of your life. (laughs) And so getting ready to, to meet this little love of my life. Can you walk us through a little bit of your thinking process and the decision-making that I'm sure was intense that led you to decide to go this route of using a sperm donor and doing in vitro? Yeah. I never pictured myself becoming a mom in this way. Mm. I grew up always wanting to be a mom, always wanting to be married, picturing myself having that very traditional nuclear family experience. And, you know, throughout my 20s and 30s, dated a lot and had, you know, a handful of significant relationships that I had hoped at the time would wind up in marriage and Mm -hmm. none of them did. And um, so it was when I was about 35, 36 that I started thinking seriously about becoming a mom on my own. And there are obviously Mm -hmm. multiple paths toward that end. And I knew that when I was meeting men and going out on first dates, second dates, that ultimately what I really felt the most urgent about was being a mom. Mm -hmm. And it started to feel like an unfair experience, both to them and to me, Hmm. to sit down with guys, getting to know guys and feeling this urgency in my spirit of like, well, is this my person? And how quickly could could we get going? And and does he want children? And is this the person I want children with? And really, it it started making dating not feel fun or exciting, but more like Mm -hmm. a means to an end, which is not fair to anybody. Hmm. And so around that time, I just decided to maybe put the dating thing on pause and focus fully on something that definitely has a timeline, a biological timeline, if I wanted to carry a baby myself, Mm -hmm. which I think that adoption is something that I considered as well. But I knew that like, if possible, if it was possible for me to carry a child, I would would love to have that experience. And so Mm -hmm. that's the road that I chose from the get-go, knowing that if it didn't work out for me, to physically carry a baby, that adoption would be an option longer, that there was a longer kind of runway for that. Mm -hmm. Right. It was as simple and as huge as making an appointment with a fertility doctor. That was the first step. Yeah. Hmm. Had no idea what would lie ahead of that, had no idea how long it would take, had no idea what was ahead or in store. But I think that for so many of, you know, our big dreams, 
it really does just start with one small step. I do kind of want to know the nitty gritty Mm -hmm. of the process. I know that wasn't one of the questions we included, but what do you have to do? How does this happen? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) How? I kind of know little bits of it because I've had other friends do it because they couldn't conceive naturally or they wanted to freeze eggs ahead of time. But I'm a little still unclear. It's a great question. And it's a question that I was unclear about when I started the process as well. It's kind of, you know, you take health class as a sixth grader or whatever. (laughs) But all these years later, I was like, how do you make a baby? (laughs) So it started with a lot of blood work and testing and Mm. measuring levels, measuring hormonal levels, measuring egg reserve levels. There are different ways that doctors can get a gauge on what your levels are and whether or not a fertility process would be appropriate or like hold any possibility for for you individually. And so went through a lot of those tests and got hormonal levels back and and egg reserve levels back and everything looked encouraging enough to at least start the process of talking about trying for a baby whether that was through IUI, which is artificial insemination or in vitro IVF. I started with the IUI process which is the most straightforward and I guess, quote unquote, simple way of Mm -hmm. trying for a baby through a doctor where I chose a sperm donor. I chose an anonymous donor. There are websites online (laughs) where you can scroll through anonymous donors and you don't see pictures of them as adults. You see pictures of them as babies or children. Oh, really? Yeah. You get some physical anecdotes about them. In my case, I got an audio interview with mine so Mm. I could hear his voice. And you liked it. (laughs) I liked his voice. (laughs) (laughs) You liked his baby picture or like, you know, how how do you decide? Because if you're looking at like hundreds, anyway. Yeah. In a way, it feels very much like online dating where you're seeing Mm -hmm. these profiles. In another way, it is nothing like online dating because you're realizing it's a commodity Hmm. and There was no sense of like, oh, wow, this sperm donor is the man for me. (laughs) I felt no emotional connection to to who this man was. But it's a tricky thing to kind of make that shift. I think a lot of the sperm donors tend to be young, college students even. And so, Um. you know, there's a mental leap that you have to make um, (laughs) if you're older than college, as I am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think that women make this choice based on all sorts of different criteria. So, Mm -hmm. you know, some might be looking for certain physical attributes. Some might be looking for certain talents or um, abilities, whether that's musical or intellectual. You know, maybe they have a a Ivy League education, maybe they're good at sports, whatever. Mm -hmm. I chose um, based on a couple of criteria that may or may not resonate with with other people, but I wanted someone who would hopefully result in a baby that looked like me and Hmm. so kind of chose physically some some characteristics that would be similar to me. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see. I mean, that's that's part of the most exciting part of meeting this baby later this week is I wonder what he's going to look like. I wonder who who he's going to be. This next question is going to sound loaded, but it's not. And I know that you know that it's not because we've discussed it elsewhere, but it also connects to the how question, Mm -hmm. which is in vitro fertilization, as I understand it, requires retrieving eggs from the woman and creating embryos And then you have a surplus of embryos, as I understand it, after the process is over, unless I guess you decide to have all of them implanted. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking of Octomom, who I've not thought about for years. (laughs) (laughs) She is neither neither here nor there. But some Christians are wondering if this process is you know, like playing God, are we doing something as humans that is that should be beyond our control? If God wants us to have children, God will give us children. We shouldn't tinker with the biology to get what we want. How did you 
wrestle through some of those more either ethical or, or spiritual questions? It's a big question. And, you know, in my case, I mentioned that I had started by doing IUI, artificial insemination. I had done that five or six times. It it had not worked for me. So as I thought about it, I thought, you know, the success rates are higher with IVF for women to, you know, get pregnant and have a live birth. But those questions were big in my mind because... I don't know if necessarily because they were things that I was deeply concerned about, but it was more of knowing knowing people who would be deeply concerned about that and um, and mm. wondering, you know, what people might think about me me doing this. And well, first, Caitlin, you mentioned that potentially someone would wind up with a surplus of embryos mm. on the other side, and then there's that ethical question of what to do with those embryos. In my case, that that was not the case at all. I went through multiple egg retrievals and rounds of embryo creation. And the first one resulted in one embryo. So I had one shot Mm. and I transferred that embryo into my womb and the pregnancy took briefly and then I lost it. So then I went through another egg retrieval and round of embryo creation. Mm. I got one embryo. (laughs) And so again, Mm. I transferred that one. It again did not work. My final egg retrieval, I wound up with two embryos. And the first one I transferred in, and it did not take. And then the second one, I am now pregnant with and a a couple days out from giving birth. And so in my case, it wound up being a non issue. Although I think that if it had been, if I had had a surplus of embryos. Um, I know that that is a question that couples, individuals wrestle with. And in my case, I would have been of the mindset that like no baby left behind. And I think I would have tried to to carry Mm -hmm. as many as I had. When it comes to the idea of playing God, I believe that God gives us a lot of agency in our lives. I believe that God does not have necessarily a, a a black and white checklist for our lives of you must do X, Y, and Z in order in order to be within my will. I found it very um, comforting to know that God creates us with longings and places those desires in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And for me, it felt like freedom to lean into my longing. And ultimately what I've learned through the fertility process and through you know, many twists and turns in this process that has taken over four years for me to get to this point mm-hmm. is I couldn't play God if I wanted to. You know, I can have the best doctors and I can pay the money and I can follow the, the schedule for the, the shots and I can eat the right way and take care of myself and do everything right and ultimately, I am not in control of whether or not I get to have a child. I believe that God is the only one who brings life. And so that also has been a comfort to me as I, and it has given me freedom and permission to, to try and to keep taking steps forward while also you know, knowing that there's no guarantee. Like nothing that I would do could guarantee me a baby. And so now that I am pregnant and about to become a mom, it is just as much a gift of grace as if I had gotten pregnant any other way. Thank you for that. That was perfect. It really was. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of data out there about the difficulties of being a single mom, the outcomes for kids that don't grow up in a two-parent household. And of course, you know all of this, but you, you know, you made that decision anyway. And so I am wondering how you're thinking about those challenges and imagining you will face them, what steps you're taking to sort of mitigate against them or to plan for them. Yeah, that's a great question. I do not take it lightly that I am bringing a baby into the world on my own. Mm. I do think that it's something that 
unlike many single moms, I'm going into it from the beginning that Mm -hmm. way with it being my choice. And so there are steps I've taken and things I've thought through in terms of the support that I'm going to need. I moved my life um, most recently from Nashville back to Kansas City, which is not where I grew up, but it's where most of my family lives now, Mm -hmm. about two years ago, knowing that this was still a goal of mine and knowing that I would need the support of family if I was going to go into this. But I know that this baby never asked to be born. (laughs) None of us have asked to be born. And that I would um, at some point, you know, potentially need to answer to that, to this child Mm -hmm. of why did I make this decision knowingly, knowing that at least as far as I can see right now, there is no second parent in the household. There's no father figure. I think that the only thing that I can say is that this baby is a product of my love and my dreams and that it has taken a lot for me to have him. He is desperately wanted. And um, I think that that will carry any child a long way, whether it's two parents or one parent who love them and are willing to do whatever it takes to give them, you know, hopefully what will be a good life. Your story thus far is a good reminder that it used to be in the course of history that like children were raised by communities, Mm -hmm. extended family networks and whatever community you find yourself in. And I feel like your story in particular, Annie, highlights just how many other people have come around you to support you before, during, and after this process of a child coming into the world. I know that there are many single parents who really are like without support and feel pretty isolated and that I can't even imagine how hard that is. And also like single parent doesn't mean you are alone in raising Mm -hmm. the child. Yeah. I have so much support. You know, I mentioned my family, but um, it extends beyond that. It it feels like an entire far flung constellation of people um, who are, I know supportive of me both verbally, but also in very practical ways. And it's interesting, you know, being pregnant, I I got added to all these emails that come to my inbox. I don't know how, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) marketing um, message boards, marketing. Just wait until after this conversation. (laughs) 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 But emails that direct me to message boards from other women who are, you know, around the same timeline as I am in my pregnancy. And I read some of these women's posts and I'm so struck with the fact that like, even if you have a partner does not mean that you will necessarily be feel supported in the same Mm -hmm. way that, that I have. So I'm so grateful that I have a really, really strong network and safety net and cheering squad and me and this baby will not be alone. I think the thing, other thing that I'm curious about is just how you've thought about not having a partner through this, what the Mm -hmm. like impact of that has felt like where you've noticed, like, I wish somebody was here or where you're like, good. Yeah. There have been plenty of times through this pregnancy where I have idealized having a partner, like whenever I have a food craving and I have to be the one to go fulfill my own food craving (laughs) or, you know, thinking about how it'd be really nice at the end of the day, if somebody were here to rub my feet. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, I don't think that all husbands would rub feet. <laughs> I don't think that all husbands would uh, step up in in the way that it's easy to idealize having a husband would be. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, it has simplified the process to, to be doing this on my own, mm. where I'm the only decision maker. And mm-hmm. sometimes that can feel lonely and overwhelming. And sometimes that really feels empowering and simple something as simple, quote unquote, simple as what am I going to name this baby? Well, whatever I want to name the baby. (laughs) But you know, from that to what type of birth this is going to be, to what will raising this child look like? Those are decisions that I'm the only decision maker on. Mm -hmm. 
which is a, a cool thing and also a hard thing. It's both and. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they go together. Let's talk a little bit about finances. <laughs> that's not always an area we're comfortable talking about, mm-hmm. but I also feel like that's why a lot of us are like, is this even feasible? Mm-hmm. So it would be kind of helpful to know what does this process cost? What can people expect in terms of expenses if they wanted to go down this route? Yeah. I love talking about finances, by the way. (laughs) Personal finance is a personal passion. Um, It's such a fair question. And I think that we need to be less precious about talking about money and finances, Mm -hmm. women in particular. I think that it's really helpful to, to lay out you know, like you said, Roxy, the nitty gritty (laughs) in a lot of different ways. And finances is one of them. I know that everybody's situation is different. I know that some people have insurance that covers a portion or maybe all of Mm. their fertility process. Some people have insurance that covers none. Some people don't have insurance. And so, yes, I think that finances can be prohibitive for some women, whether they're partnered or not, to pursue a fertility path. In my case, I had a portion of the cost covered by my health insurance through my employer. I think it was the first $20,000 would be covered or, you know, partner with me for the first the first 20 grand. In my experience, in my case, that was enough to get me going with the process. Mm-hmm. It was enough for me to say, "Okay, I'm going to try." And we'll see how quickly we run out of the, the $20,000. Well, it happens really fast <laughs> when it comes to the fertility process. I'm you know, happy to talk figures. I think for the IUI, artificial insemination, I think that that ran me about all in probably about $2,500 an attempt. Mm-mm. It's the least expensive, mm-hmm. but also has the lowest success rate. Right. But you hear stories about people who get pregnant on the first try. And so that was where I started. So IUI was about, I think a a vial of sperm is, I don't know, $700, $900, something like that. So I had been a good saver. I had a cushion of money that I was ready to dive in and try. When I kicked up to IVF, that's where where the big bucks really come in. Your medications are really expensive. I think IVF, you know, was running about... $20,000 an attempt all in. But, you know, I really had to do some some emotional work for myself around the money part because I cling to money as security just as much as anybody else does. And I think especially being single and providing for Mm -hmm. my own life, knowing that there's there's no backup salary, there's no dual income to rely on. But in my case, I made the very conscious decision to shift my thinking about money from being something that would guarantee an outcome to something that would be insurance against regret. I did not want to ever regret not trying. And by spending this money, it would ensure that I would never have to wonder. And in that way, it was able to feel worth it to me regardless of the outcome. Like you would never one day be able to say, I don't know if I gave it my best faith effort. I don't know if I invested enough time and money and energy and years of my life pursuing this dream. No one could say that. (laughs) Right. No one could say it. And regardless of outcome, I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. We imagine that we have a lot of women listeners across the life stage spectrum I think we're all around the same age on this call. (laughs) Mm It's that unspoken number. And so (laughs) is this something you would recommend, especially I think for single women of a certain age who know that they deeply desire to be moms, what advice would you give knowing that not every IVF story will end in the way that your story is coming to an end? I would not recommend it. I would not say that this is a a really great formulaic way to make your dreams come true because Mm -hmm. I think we know enough about statistics to know that it's, there's no guarantee for anything. I think that if any woman were to say to me, hey, I'm about to embark on an IVF journey or a fertility journey, I think the only thing that I could say to them is, you know, (laughs) 
God be with you mm. <laughs> because it's hard. It's a really hard process. It's very hard on the body. It's hard on the emotions. It's hard on the, on the bank account. It's a really difficult process. What I would say to women who want to be moms, who find themselves without a partner for whatever reason, and you know, at any stage of their singleness journey, if there is a woman out there who wants to be a mom, I would recommend that she lean into that desire because I think that to listen to our desires is really a good and beautiful thing. It doesn't mean that we will get what we want, but I I think it's important to pay attention to those desires and to take whatever next step you find in front of yourself. For some women that might be deciding to do foster care and open up their home to a child. For some women, it might be getting a dog, <laughs> you know, not to equate the two, right. but as somebody who has two dogs and loves my dogs very deeply, I think that having dogs for the last 10 years has allowed me to, to flex my nurturing muscle in a way that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And it's been a really beautiful, profound experience to, to care for animals. Um, you know, for some women, it might be becoming a CASA volunteer and advocating for kids in the foster system. For some, it might be showing up as just that incredibly engaged aunt or aunt mm. figure to the children of your siblings or your friends. But whatever next step is available to you, I want women to know that your desires are good and especially a desire for something like nurturing life. I don't think there's anything more beautiful than that. Thank you so much, Annie, for joining us. This was a really lovely conversation. And I know our listeners will find it fascinating and just be really encouraged by your perspective. And best of luck. I'm sure you're you're nervous and excited all at once. Looking at a few days away from, from holding your baby. Definitely. Yeah, I am nervous and excited. And it's always good to chat with you too and see your faces. And I hope to see you again in New York sooner rather than later, just with a baby in tow next time. (laughs) Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Windham and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fallow wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.